This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. My guest today has been a teacher of directors, actors, and writers since 1985. She is the author of Directing Actors and The Film Director's Intuition. She recently released a 25th anniversary edition of her best-selling book with new expanded ideas. Coming up is the woman who dedicated herself to helping directors and actors create memorable performances for film and television. Stay tuned for Judith Weston. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 Thank you for having me. This material that you wrote has been really valuable to so many directors coming up. How important do you think it is that a director has taken some acting classes or had to be an actor? How does that, how do you feel about that? I think it's very important for directors to do some acting. And in fact, that was the course that I originally started teaching. It was called Acting for Directors. That's how I got into this racket. I had started a class called Acting for Non-Actors. It was time to start teaching. I was in my late thirties and wasn't getting as many roles. And my teacher had always told me that I would teach. I started teaching this acting for non-actors. It was like you might take a ceramics class, like a hobby. And I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. And then I thought, well, what about teaching other kinds of non-actors? What about teaching directors something about acting? I had a knack for getting performances out of people who had never acted before. I had learned that from teaching this acting for non-actors. And directors, I just felt they needed it. They needed to understand what actors better and I could I could put them in the actor's shoes and I developed this um, well first it was one night a week for eight weeks and then it became three days all day long you know like a 10-hour day for three days in a row and I take them through acting exercises and monologues and improvisations and eventually to doing a two-person scene pair them up and have them do to memorize some lines and do a two-person scene if I say so myself it was a fantastic class and people came out of it very uh, exhilarated. I just felt they, they had to have that basic thing, even if it was only three days, to just know something. And they would tell me over and over again afterwards, I never realized that this is what actors were going through. And they would say, I now have so much more respect for them. Dealing with actors and their foibles and insecurities and the sort of kind of person they are as an artist, what's the headline of that? relationship of understanding that sensitivity? Actors are different from other people. You hear actors refer to people who are not actors as uh, civilians. You feel more comfortable around other people who are actors, right? There's a shared experience. There's an outsider status. Uh, actors are more emotional. That's their stock and trade is emotions. They can be more impulsive. Sometimes people who aren't actors find that off-putting. Well, acting is an exercise in empathy 
in every which way as a storyteller, because even sometimes you have to play a part that may not be a popular character or a likable character in order for the story to tell well. Yes. Well, that's one of the most important things that actors learn if they have any kind of good training is that they can't judge their character. You have to find out why they're doing what they're doing, that everybody has a reason for, for what they do. It, it may be a reason that somebody looking in from the outside says, well, that's not a good enough reason. But everybody has a reason. Everybody thinks they're doing the best they can. Of course, sometimes people that we call villains, they're having fun. It's fun for them to stir up trouble. You know, there's different kinds of quote unquote bad guys. Some of them are doing what they think is the right thing. Other people are joining a cartel because it feels like family. And other people are troublemakers, <laughs> but they're having fun. Yeah, there's some humanity in this because sometimes you can look at that villain and say, he's a villain because his dad abused him. And what leads them to things sometimes is also something that you can actually, a relatable situation of it's not who they are, it's what's happened to them that's caused them to make this choice. Absolutely. But I've also seen a couple of interesting things, an interview with, with Javier Bardem about No Country for Old Men playing Anton Chigurh, and where he said he couldn't figure out what might be the inner life of a sociopath. And he decided to think about absolutely nothing at all times. Now, it's a brilliant performance, but it's actually quite a brilliant choice that because very possibly it, it, it's a reasonable guess that a sociopath does not have an inner life. Yeah, and if you lack empathy, you don't feel bad about your action. No, but the point is that you look at behavior. You ask questions. A big deal for me is asking questions. You know, to look for, well, I call it uh, mysterious lines. For a simple example of a mysterious line is a person who says, I'm not angry. If you're not angry, you don't have to say so, right? So that's a mysterious line. What is the person really saying? They're saying, I'm very angry, but I, I think I'm suppressing it. And I don't think you can tell that I'm angry. <laughs> I hope you can't tell that I, it might be that. I think what you're talking about is subtext here. Yes. Subtext is the whole deal. How important for a director trying to figure out in analyzing the script what that subtext is so they can communicate to actors so that they're not looking at the words at face value. What's very important for directors is to understand that there is subtext, to ask themselves questions about the lines and the stage directions and the script, to let it take them deeper underneath the script, to, to a place where they can have ideas about what I call the emotional event. That, to me, that's the most important subtext tool for a director, is to understand what the emotional event of a scene is. And that means how the two characters affect each other. But one of the big shifts that I think directors need to make is instead of thinking about the individual performances, to thinking about the story in terms of relationships. And each scene, there's a relationship, two or more people, and they're having an effect on each other. And something has to happen in that scene so that there's no such thing as an information scene. There's no such thing as an exposition scene. There has to be something that happens or otherwise, we don't really need it. That's the most important thing for a director to understand. I think that when directors, if they want to talk to actors about their inner life, they should get permission first. 
they should say, do you like to talk about some of your choices with the director or would you rather just do it and then we can talk about it later if we need to? One of the things I think for directors is they need to find out if the actors like to talk about their choices for their inner life or if they'd rather be left alone because a lot of them would rather be left alone. Actors, on the other hand, need to find out about their director if they're willing to hear their ideas or not because some directors just aren't. And it's a good idea to find that out. Yeah, to see what kind of team you're working with. If a director doesn't want to hear an actor's ideas and an actor keeps coming up with ideas, they get a reputation for being difficult. I mentioned Kazan, and I, I saw a quote in your book about he talked about subtext is the skeleton under the skin of the words. Mm. So what appears to be happening is rarely what is actually happening. And I think that's what makes a good script dynamic is that we're asked as a viewer to put the puzzle together almost like we're a forensics expert by seeing those emotional events play out and go, wait, I wonder what really is happening here because they're not really fighting about that. Mm. They must be in love or something. As an audience, I like to do some work. I don't like to be lazy myself as an audience. I enjoy movies that are hard to figure out, but not everybody does and they don't have to. Not everybody has to enjoy movies that are hard to figure out. But what you want for the audience is you want them to feel that everything that happens is surprising, but inevitable. You want there to be surprises. You want there to be plot twists and things that they didn't predict or didn't see coming, but that when it happens, they don't say, oh, that's too ridiculous. That couldn't happen. That they feel like, oh yeah, of course that was going to happen. Be sure to bring most audiences along with is to have that sense when the big turning points happen, to have them feel like, wow, as a surprise, didn't see that coming, but at the same time go, yeah, of course, now I get it. Well, you mentioned earlier that you worked with non-actors, got performances out of non-actors, where a person who is for the first time being in a scene and they have a look or they have a vibe or they're being cast in a rural community or for whatever reason that non-actor is then introduced into this world. What is it that you do to make them trust you and to feel safe to do the performance? Well, what I tell directors to do is to not ask them to act, to cast them so that they're so close to the character that they don't have to do any acting. So the simple thing is don't ask a non-actor to act because they don't have the tools. They're likely to be stiff or fall into line meetings, to say the line the same way every time. The most important thing to get them to do is to listen, to respond to their scene partners. If you're casting non-actors, make sure they are good listeners already, that they're alert, they're responsive, they're interested in other people. I feel very strongly about that. If they're in a lead role, you need to spend a lot of time with them to make them feel safe enough to be vulnerable in front of a camera. Some of those performances, I think back and seeing something where you, it's so real, it almost feels like a documentary. When a non-actor has a, a connection to who they are within that, I'm talking about maybe youth, particularly when you see a youthful actor that a director gets a performance out of. Alexander Payne has a tendency to cast folks in towns where he goes to Western Nebraska, or the grocer or the doctor or somebody is somebody from the community that may not have done a major movie. 
And sometimes you look at them and you say, that is really the perfect person in that role. Well, they're not acting. If you cast a grocer as a grocer, that's a good idea. <laughs> I don't know if you remember the movie Sling Blade, Billy Bob Thornton's sure. first starring and directing movie. He tells a story on the DVD commentary. He had decided for, for the opening scenes where Sling Blade is still in, in this facility, in an institution, and he's about to go out. And there's a janitor in the scene who's mopping up. And Billy Bob decided to cast a real janitor from a real institution where they were shooting. And then what Billy Bob was looking at the at the rushes and thought, this guy is great. He really thought he was fantastic. And so he wanted to give him more to do. And so he said to him, let's add something to your scene. Let's have you uh, pick a little fight with my character. And the janitor slash actor just looked at him and said, well, but I wouldn't do that. <laughs> and then Billy, right. Billy Bob says, well, let's just pretend, you know, it's a movie. It's not really you. And the guy just said, well, no, I, I wouldn't do that. And, and so Billy Bob had to give up this idea. But that's a great story because the actor told him, I'm not an actor and I'm not going to act. And Billy Bob finally listened. Yeah, that's funny. He almost got him riled up enough to get in a fight with him <laughs> over not wanting to have a fight. <laughs> I don't know. I remember in L.A. a, a casting going on. It was a comedy thing, and I happened to be around when it was happening. And they were looking at all kinds of person for a janitor. Anyway, a very clever actor came and dressed up as a janitor, and he came after the auditions and came in while they were discussing. <laughs> and he just emptied the trash and then left. And they're like, we need a guy like that guy. But he was an actor pretending. He just came to the audition super late, and they ended up casting him for the role. And that was, to me, a really funny way of going about it. Very smart. With the new revisions in the directing actor's book that you have the 25th anniversary, you talked about there being three goals with the book. You talked about taking us on a journey inside the actor's world, giving communication tools for more effective directing, and then script analysis. So what's going on under the surface? So I just really want to know when the script analysis is something that is critical to even begin a project for a director. In pre-production, they got to break the script down. Yeah. There are so many tools in the back of this book, in the appendix, about <laughs> specifically what to do. But when they pick that up, what's the first questions they're asking themselves in analyzing a script? What do I love about this script? And what reservations do I have about it? That's the first question I think they should ask. What do I love? What do I not love? That's what I think everybody should do with a script. And then you look at the things you don't love and you find out ways that you can come to love them or else you turn down the project. Of course, not everybody is in a position to turn down a project if they don't love it. But I feel you need to make this journey of finding a way to connect to it to the point where you could not judge the script. You're making a commitment to be with the script for a couple of years. Yeah, or, or even a couple of weeks if it's a television show. But you have to say, where do I feel a connection to this script? And where do I feel no connection? And the places where you feel no connection, you've got to do some research. And, and you've got to research and ask questions. What could this possibly mean? And what could be underneath it that will make me feel more connected to it? 
And you suggested in the book that making a list of themes is a good way to decide how to break your script down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I came up with that because I used to teach this class called script analysis and rehearsal techniques. And I was lucky enough to get a hold of scripts that had not yet been produced. And the first one was, I guess it was 1993, 94. And there were my students, they wanted a class like this. And so I said, well, you guys are better able to find scripts than I am. Find me a script. And so somebody got a hold of the script of Forrest Gump, which hadn't come out yet. And I started being able to find more scripts on my own. And there was a very helpful way that I learned to make a list, like at least 10 possible themes, and then boil it down to three major themes, and then Mm -hmm. see if a central theme swims up to you. You need to know what you're saying. What is the purpose of this project? What is your higher purpose, if you don't mind me calling it that? And what's it about? And you have to let that kind of choose you. I'm a big list maker. When I come to a, a, a line that seems confusing, I'd like to come up with three possible things that it could mean. And, and that really relaxes me. It really opens up my creativity in ways that I can't predict. Finding those themes and narrowing it down, you're really headed towards what in poetry they might call a universal truth. Then you can have context about, for your whole script as you begin to see what the central theme is. And you talk about in script analysis that you're looking for hidden clues in the material, and that kind of can help reinforce the theme or at least lead you towards things that will get great performances and decide what material needs to stay and what needs to be cut if it's not on that topic. No, not exactly. I I want things to be rich. I I, I don't want to prune away. I don't teach writers. I I, I don't operate as a script doctor. So I, I don't tell people how they should fix or change their scripts. But if I did, I, I, I wouldn't be there to tell them to prune away things that don't fit into their exact theme. I like there to be richness. You take the Godfather. There's so many themes, really. Loyalty, marriage. Marriage is a theme where you get to compare several different marriages, which are very different from each other. So that's a theme. I don't think it's one of the main themes, but it's a theme. And that contributes to the richness of the movie. So in looking for the themes and more depth and more relationships, how do you recommend a director go about setting up a rehearsal process that's productive and effective for everybody? Because they're joining this story after weeks and weeks of analysis by the director. Do you have advice on setting up a rehearsal situation that it's like it lets everybody join this family in motion. Oh, I have a ton of advice. <laughs> I have a ton of advice, but directors need to learn how to rehearse before they can run a rehearsal. Don't you think? Sometimes directors, they'll say, well, I'm, I'm going to get uh, a week of rehearsal or I'm going to get three days of rehearsal. They've promised me that. So what should I do? And so, so I can't help saying, well, you've got to learn how to rehearse before you run a rehearsal. So I'm very big on asking them to to figure out how to find ways to practice learning how to rehearse. I used to teach classes that had both actors and directors in it. One that I called an actor-director laboratory, another one rehearsal techniques. And then they could rehearse with actors in front of me 
or they could rehearse outside of class and bring it in. And I could ask questions and, and give them some feedback on what had worked and what wasn't working. Those were a blast. I had a lot of fun with those classes and felt very good about them. But I'm not teaching them now. I closed my studio in 2015. So I'm not teaching cl- uh, workshops like that. I taught them for 20 years, but I'm not teaching them now. So I, I recommend that people find another class that does that great. But if they can't, that they set something up themselves, set up their own little studio, their own little atelier, find some actors and get together and say, hey, I need to practice rehearsing to be able to watch actors getting critiqued by their teachers and watch them rehearse. I don't think that directors should jump into a scene study class. I think they should take a beginning class and a Meister class maybe and learn about listening. That's the most important thing. But if they stick with it long enough to get to scene study, then they, they can learn that's how it works. It's a whole craft. I, I say to directors who, who want me to tell them how to rehearse, like, you know, don't rehearse if you don't know how. Really don't. Cast well. Make sure they're listening and stage it well. You have good blocking and good camera placement. But lean into what you're good at. Here's a very common uh, mistake that directors who don't know how to rehearse is they're watching the actors and trying to figure out if they've made a casting mistake. That's Mm. not helpful at all. When actors feel they're being scrutinized for whether they might have been a casting mistake, that doesn't help them get better. We're going on the set in front of the camera. How could it, right? Another mistake they do is have them do the scene over and over again until the line readings get set. It just makes it worse. It just gets worse and worse if they do that. I'm a great believer of using improv in rehearsal. I think that's a great thing to do. Throw away the scripts, improvise the scene, improvise the scenes that are not in the script. But you have to have some practice. You can't just jump in. You have to have some practice in a situation without pressure. And you mentioned blocking. So in theater, the blocking is where people are and how they cross and what direction they're facing. And then when you add it to an event like film or television, you're also blocking the cameras and being sure that the event is being recorded from certain angles. And I read in your book that you talked about blocking for dialogue scenes is becoming a lost art. I would love your point of view on that because I know what you mean, but I'm not sure everybody realizes that multi-camera, they seem to cover actors from the left and the right, and they chop it together that way. But in terms of blocking or dialogue scenes, what is going by the wayside? What are you seeing as absent there? It's a whole point of view about movies that action scenes are interesting and dialogue scenes are sort of not. (laughs) And a lot of directors have that belief. And you have to believe that a dialogue scene is an action scene, Mm. that something happens in it that's important and interesting. I I really think it's very helpful to watch some of the vintage legendary directors who were very good at blocking George Stevens and Ilya Kazan and Mike Nichols. If you just watch the opening scene of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, you will see how much you could do with blocking. I think it would blow people's minds. It's on YouTube. I hope everybody will go and look at it because it's really amazing. And and just think what the alternative might have been is to have them both come in and sit down at the kitchen table and say their lines to each other and shoot them from over each shoulder. 
And, and oh, I got to tell you one more thing. I was just reading this morning. I was just seeing somebody talking about this movie, Fanny and Alexander, Ingmar Bergman. And it was Thomas Vinterberg, who's a Danish director. Maybe not everybody's heard of him. He's a real favorite of mine, but he's a younger person. And he, he was talking about how in Fanny and Alexander, or all of Bergman's work, because Bergman came from theater. And so in theater, when you're blocking, if you want to have the equivalent of a close-up, you just have everybody on stage look at the person that you want the close-up of. I mean, it's much harder to get the audience to feel like it's a close-up if you've got everybody on stage than it is if you've got the camera who could just have that person's face in, in the frame. It can be learned. Uh, but you have to want to study it. You have to be interested in it. And you can take movies that are well-blocked in dialogue scenes and study them frame by frame, figure out where the shots are. Yeah, you mentioned Kazan's On the Waterfront. And you look at how they ma manage the dialogue. Ah. And it really is dynamic. Yes. And I think that directors that come from theater often know how to create tension by putting a distance between characters, by having them face opposite directions, by having them look out the window, by having the status different from sitting and standing. Exactly. All of those things can make a big difference. Yes. Uh, versus a sitcom family all sitting around a table. We've gotten to be where so much stuff is cut so quickly, almost like a sports event. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, there are sitcoms that are very well blocked. The old Taxi was really classic for that. Do you have advice for directors that have to work with a major star or somebody who may have a reputation of being able to handle all the material without being overly directed? Like what that relationship is when somebody has a little bit more clout as a performer? How to communicate with them? Sure. The first thing is to talk to them like a person and talk to them like an artist, to ask them their ideas and disclose yours. One of the things that I think is the most important thing for a director to tell all the actors, but especially if they're stars, is why you're making this movie, why it matters to you. And if you wrote it, why you wrote it. And if somebody else wrote it, why you accepted the job of directing it. I think that's a very important place to start, is to tell them what matters to you, why you're doing it. And to have that in your pocket, Ava DuVernay says, every morning on the way to set, she reminds herself again why she's making this movie. And that has to be your North Star all the way through. And the, the thing to disclose to actors of any amount of experience. And then to also ask the actors why they're taking the role. What do they see in the character that excites them? I was consulting with a, a, a young director just yesterday, and she was going to make her second short film. There were a lot of requirements for the roles, a foreign language that everybody had to be able to speak. And I said, have you cast it? She said, yes. And she said she was really worried because this actor who's going to play a father was had 40 years experience, and he was a little intimidating. So I said, well, tell me exactly what he said to you when you've had a conversation. And she said, well, we didn't have much of a conversation, but he just told me that, that he'd been waiting all his life to play a part like this because the father that he was going to be playing was like his father. And I said, oh, my dear, you've hit the jackpot. And then she said that he'd also said, you know, I know I've got 40 years of experience, but I don't want you to be afraid. I said, can you let yourself hear that? 
she was so nervous and it was a very personal story that it was hard for her to hear this sort of gruff looking and 40 years experience actor telling her that he was grateful for the opportunity to be in her movie. He was willing to go on the journey too. That was a very good gift from him yes, to her. Yes, beautiful gift, beautiful be gift. Because oftentimes there's a little standoff in the beginning to see out who's in charge. There's some control and some fear on both people's parts. Yes, but when you make it about the work, not about the egos, and the way to make it about the work is to talk about what the, the, the purpose of the script is, what we're there for. We're there to tell a story, and what is important about this story. Yeah, storytelling is sometimes overlooked by the different departments. We are all telling one story in that, and sometimes what you do in your scene impacts something much later in the movie you're not involved in. And so it's not about you. It is about the story. Yeah. And, and we're shepherding that into place, almost like a symphony. There's different instruments and at different timbers and the director is essentially the conductor that wants to be sure that it's cohesive and that the story tells well. Do you find a difference between directing comedy material and drama? Well, they always say comedy's harder because it has to have everything that drama has. It has to have real emotion and real predicaments and anger, but then it has to be funny. <laughs> so yeah. I, I, of course, I love comedy. I love to direct comedy, love to perform comedy. I did put a, a chapter on comedy in the new book in the, oh, in the 25th anniversary edition to try to give people some ideas of how they can practice in order to direct comedy if they haven't directed comedy before. Of course, there's always a story of Sidney Pollack, who, when he was tapped to direct Tootsie, had never directed comedy. And he had, mm. in fact, directed some of the darkest movies of the 1970s. You know, they shoot horses, don't they? I mean, very, very mm -hmm. dark stuff. Later, he said, I don't know why they hired me for this. I've never directed comedy. I'm just going to direct it real make the predicaments real. And then, of course, he cast funny people. But being real and telling the truth is very important. Yes. When you try to yes. do comedy and make it broad and make it funny and yes. know it's funny, both in performance and in directing, it generally is unsatisfying. But if you can see the truth and the reality of the struggle and what's going on, and that's absurd. So oftentimes the characters don't know that it's funny. No, lots of times they don't. <laughs> I once had a young director who said, I really want to direct comedy. What should I do? And and this was a person I could tell was a very serious person. <laughs> so I said, well, you have to find a way to think of life as absurd. There's pain and there's terrible things, but there's an absurdity to it. And, and you have to find that in yourself, not just in the script, but in yourself. Find your own funny, find mm -hmm. your own sense of absurdity. Do you mind sharing one of those techniques at all? The, the, the principle of incongruity, the, a, a character who reacts to losing his pencil as if he's just lost his car, right, a, right. an incongruous response to an event in, in the plot. That could be funny, right? Sure, yeah. Or putting people in a unlikely location for that argument or that 
situation put them in a completely absurd place where they still have to have a serious conversation. There is a lot of things that don't change the performance, but do make it humorous. I do think the actor has to have some sense of their uh, absurdity. I'm just going to go back to Tootsie for a moment because there were lots of funny people who could play comedy. Gina Davis, Dustin Mm -hmm. Hoffman, of course, Terry Garr, Bill Murray, Dabney Coleman were all very adept at finding the absurdity in any kind of situation. But then the female lead was Jessica Lange, and she came to Sidney Pollack and she said, what am I going to do? I'm not funny at all. And he said, well, you don't have to be. You can be the straight man. Mm -hmm. As you said, casting is very important there. Everybody can't be the funniest guy or else you have the big cacophony of goofballs. Andy Griffith sat at the center of that series as a a stable person while Barney and all the different characters were coming and going. Here's a great example, Schitt's Creek, which had Mm -hmm. so many wacky characters. And then Eugene Levy, he was playing the straight man. When he accepted his Emmy, he said, I can't believe I've been playing the punchline guy for so long, and I get my first award for playing a straight man. Well, congratulations on the 25th anniversary edition of Directing Actors. The subtitle is Creating Memorable Performances for Film and Television. Judith, I appreciate you sharing your insights and inspiration so folks can get that book and your other book. They can find out more at judithweston.com. Oh, and my links to social media. Yes. Are they at Judith Weston? At judithweston.com, yeah. All right. Well, very good. Thank you. It was super fun to talk to you. Well, thank you. Thank you, Pat. I enjoyed it. spark of electricity a skipping stone that sets you free or captive to a mystery the curse of creativity 